Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Are we there? So we have been two weeks removed from this sermon series, and rightfully so. Um, as I spoke about though last week, I had read up and studied up on this chapter as it is a tough one. I'm going to be honest with you. As a pastor, it's a tough one to break down. It's a tough one to dissect, but um, I'm going to do my best to do that today. But, you know, one of the things that I, I've spoken to my wife about in um, especially going through this chapter, not so much just Ecclesiastes, is the emphasis and the importance for us as Christians to just truly study God's Word. And, you know, it can always be left up once again, as I've spoken in church, that it's the pastor's job, the preacher's job, maybe to sit there and try to be learned in the Word of God. And yes, we are given a gift to be able to stand up here and teach and preach, to be able to comprehend His Word at a certain level, but be able to communicate it to you guys to be able to understand it as well. And I want to make sure that when I preach and teach, that I do it in a manner, in a way that you guys do understand it. And I am so thankful and grateful for a wife that will humble me very quickly if I fail at doing that during a sermon. Well, she will let me know you don't have to use such big, fancy words. You want people to be able to pick up what, what it is that you're putting down. And I think I've done better, right, with that? Yeah, she's like, whatever. Anyways. Yeah, she'll find something, she said for me. So, um, and today might be a day where I use some big fancy words, but I'm going to do my best to explain what those big fancy words are. And I know like we have in the room with Mariah and Olivia, educators that appreciate the, the significance of big fancy words, but also the importance of being able to teach what those big fancy There you go. There you go. Right, right. So, um, but, you know, I, I know there's other people in here that appreciate too, as we refer to geeking out with the Bible, Right. I see people smiling and they know who I'm talking about. Just being able to just open up God's Word to be able to understand His Word even that much more, right? But in this chapter in particularly, like, we have numerous Bible translations that are in our house. And, you know, I preach out of the NIV today. However, I am preaching out of the ESV. Um, but we have, once again, numerous translations that we use to kind of get an idea of the objective meaning of the, the words that are being spoken about in the text, Okay. And I want to dedicate a couple minutes to today's preaching to kind of give you guys a little bit of a layout of why I do this, okay? I do believe as, as I go through, and I've, I've read certain commentaries, especially on Ecclesiastes and even chapter 8, that for the most part, if we apply the proper, here's the big fancy word, which I will explain what it means, the proper hermeneutics. She know, you know what that She knows what that one means, so I'm good. Okay, the proper hermeneutics, okay, so... We are, we are applying the context of the Scripture, okay? And you guys have heard me talk about this. We're talking about the author. We're talking about the date it was written. We're talking about the audience. We're talking about the purpose of the writing, okay? We have to hold these things into account when we are reading God's Word so we have an understanding of what's being said. And I do believe that when you apply proper hermeneutics to a book, a phrase, whatever, for the most part, you will find that translations will say the same thing, okay? That is just what I have found out in reading it, okay? Now, there are going to be certain things which we will unpack today in regards to, I might even have my wife open up her phone because I showed her something this morning, where sometimes this can be tripped up. Sometimes in the translation process of Scripture, there can be some mishaps, and they're referred to, it's called textual variance, which just means that there is a misreading maybe of the original, if it be Hebrew or the Greek text. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament was written in Greek, okay? So in the translation of that being such an old language into a language which we have English, which was not around when these texts were written, can pose to be somewhat of an issue, okay? So I'll give you guys a little bit of a background, what takes place. There's three steps usually when a translation is going on and taking place, okay? This usually is not done by one individual, okay? This isn't even done by two individuals. So Brandon Oaks and myself don't get together and go, hey, let's get the Greek and let's get the Hebrew of what's written. We're going to translate this into our own Bible version. No, there's probably about 40 to 50 to 60 scholars that sit down and they evaluate the text. And they usually go through three separate phrases. There's a word for word, phrase for phrase, or thought for thought, I guess you should say, and then a paraphrase. Now, the first part, word for word, is done by more of your, what I feel like to be truer Bible translations. King James Version, 
guys can say amen. There you go, I was waiting for it. Your ESV and your NASB, okay? These translations were done by a group of scholars where they worked effortlessly to take the Greek and the Hebrew and do what they could to translate it word for word. But once again, it's extremely difficult to do that when you're taking a language like the Hebrew and Greek and doing it into a language, English, that wasn't around back then. Can we agree to that? It'd be very difficult to do that. But for the most part, once again, when you look through these phrases and you look through these texts, you will see commonality. Then there's a thought for thought. Okay, What does that mean? Well, we take what's being said in the Greek, we take what's being said in the Hebrew, and for readability and comprehensive purposes, we try to make it to where the reader can understand it. Now, I've been pretty outspoken about the dangers of that sometimes because it can lead to a misunderstanding of the text. Which ones do that? The NIV, the NLT, Bible translations that are probably a little bit more easier for us to read. Now, I preach out of the NIV, but I hope you guys would say that, yeah, he, t he tries his best to explain what's being said. That's my job as a preacher and a teacher. Then more so when you do a thought for thought or a paraphrase, these tend to be a little bit more dangerous, okay? Because what they're doing is, is this isn't even done most likely by a group of scholars. This is done by probably fewer individuals that sit around and go, Brandon, what do you think this is saying, right? Or Scott, when we read this together, Dave, what do you think is being spoken about here? And we tend to write it out and then we put it out there. So this isn't so much a translation as it would be called an interpretation. This could be dangerous. And there are Bible translations out there that do this, okay? So what we have to be mindful of, though, is when we're reading these texts and we're seeing stuff here, especially in Ecclesiastes 8, I want you guys to know that as I read through this, and I have the ESV that I'm going to be preaching out of, I'm also going to use Scripture to defend Scripture. Now, what does that mean? That's another hermeneutical approach. That means that if I read something here objectively in its context, there's probably biblical phrases somewhere else that attest to the meaning of what's being spoken about, right? So I'm using the Bible to defend the Bible, okay? And this is when we get into these fancy words like systematic theology and all that stuff. Now, once again, I'm not going to give you guys like a seminar. I'm not a theologian. Praise God, my wife said. Okay. However, I do think it's important for you guys to know this because once again, in our church in the West, it can be spoken and this culture can be established that it's your job to be dumb and it's my job to be educated as a pastor. Right? I mean, let's be honest. I'm here to listen to you teach me, and I'm going to take it for what it's being said. But we can all attest and agree that there's a danger in that approach. Even more so if I stand up here with the knowledge that you guys agree to that. There's this agreement, unspoken agreement between me and my body. I'm the pastor. What I teach and preach goes, and you guys listen to it and see it as doctrine. You see it as gospel. That opens the door for me to preach and teach some pretty goofy theology and it happens you got a lot of you in here can attest to that i'm not up here claiming that i know everything lord knows i don't but what i am up here doing and, and i'm trying to attest to you guys as a pastor is that i labor in the word and i encourage you guys to test the things that i speak to you because the bible commands you to do that this is how we grow as christians right so when we look at something, though, like systematic theology, I'll just talk about this for a couple minutes and bear with me, Jelaine, because I, I think it's important. Systematic theology, guys, is nothing uncommon. You guys probably do it and don't even realize it, okay? Systematic theology is basically taking Scripture and breaking it up into systems or chunks of a particular topic. So if I say Christology or Christology, what am I studying? Christ. If I speak about ecclesiology, and or ecclesiology is reference to the study of the church. Um, eschatology, Jelaine, what is that? The study of end times. They're just different systems that you study. Nikki, you're a nurse, right? The body's composed of different systems. We understand each system to actually better understand another system and the function of it. So we're not just picking stuff 
to just sit here and be a nerd or a geek about it. We're actually picking certain things that have a better understanding of other parts of the Bible. And we find this throughout Scripture. And it's a beautiful way of unpacking God's Word. It really is. You know, this is why I can struggle sometimes. And I'm not sitting here knocking anyone that does this, but I know that there's a lot of stuff out there. And I've talked to some of you guys about this, where people want to do this you know, if it means read the Bible in a year, read the Bible in six months. I'm not against that. If people get in the Bible, it's fine that they do it. But what do you guys think would be the danger of us just simply trying to get through the Bible in a year? You're Are you rushing? Yeah. Right? And you're not reading for understanding. You're not reading for understanding. And then let me just throw this out there for you guys, because I've done this. I'm guilty of this, okay? And I say guilty like it was a crime, so I apologize. But let me tell you how you feel when you do it. How many of you have done this and you fall back in what you should be reading? Right? Then where do you, how do you feel? I haven't read the Bible in a week. Oh man, I'm behind. So what do you do? What's your approach? Do you go back and hurry up and skim to get caught up? Do you just skip what you forgot and just go, okay, I'll go back to it? Do you see how the unity and the, the ability and the possibility of actually unpacking and chewing on God's Word goes away. As a pastor, guys, in all honesty, I would love for you to just stay in a book for a year. And I've seen people do that, where they stick in the book of John for a year. And if time permitted me, I, I would preach on a verse for you guys like once every Sunday. Like I would just go through it that way. It can be done. Why? Because I could take a verse and find other verses in the Bible to connect and validate that verse and to give you guys an understanding of what's being spoken about. It's a beautiful thing to do. It isn't about being a geek. Once again, this isn't about being heady. It's not about you guys going, oh, that's the... Guess what? You should be doing that. It's a beautiful thing to do as a Christian. You will never run out of content when it comes to reading God's Word. I'll never run out of content when it comes to preaching and teaching it. Ever. So when it comes to Ecclesiastes 8, and we unpack this once again, and, and to kind of revisit here the theme of what's going on in Ecclesiastes, the push and pulls of life. I, this book has been extremely fruitful for me as a pastor. I mean, if you were to say to me now in my walk, what is your favorite book in the Bible? Right now, your pastor would say Ecclesiastes. And there's reasons for that. One, it's just a practical book. It speaks to the heart of believers and non-believers. You can't argue your way out of the logic of this book. You know what I mean? Like, you're born one day, you die one day. Anyone want to debate about that? <laughs> like, let's go. We can, we can argue about this, right? Like, good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. Do you want to argue about it? Let's go. Let's debate. Like, this is what the book is speaking about. And the beauty of it is, is in the time that it was written, it really goes up, as we said, and rubs against the theology that was popular in its day. And that was what? If you serve God and love God and are obedient to God, guess what? You will then be blessed by God. Wait a minute. That doesn't always seem to be the case. Your lives attest to it, especially as Christians. And a dangerous place that you could be in as a Christian is to sit there and go, okay, I go to church every Sunday, I pray every day, I read my Bible every day, even the way Pastor Josh said I should read it. I'm involved in systematic theology and all this stuff. Like, I, I feel like I'm doing what I... But bad stuff is happening, or I've been you know, afflicted with a disease, or what... This book speaks about that. It's a book of wisdom. Learned knowledge. And if you take the Old Testament, guys, you can break the Old Testament up into sections, okay? You have the election of the patriarchs in the beginning. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then you have the Exodus, okay? God's people leaving Egypt. Then you have the empire, the Davidic kingdom, prosperity of God's people. What happens when prosperity is in place? You start to see arts and literature and wisdom and poetry. This is when this book was written. And then you see the exodus, or the exile, I mean. So this is a book that is written during a time of prosperity. The Davidic kingdom. So you're starting to see all this learned knowledge just flow from the author here. 
And you have your other books like Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. Job, to an extent, is even seen as a wisdom book. So I want you guys to understand this, that when you're reading through God's Word, guys, there are messages and messages that are defending other messages throughout the Bible. So we don't just believe in God and His Word based on this blind faith. We believe in it because it really does weave this tapestry and majesty of Christ throughout it. So I want you guys to just chew on that, especially as we go through this. Because this book is a book of wisdom, there's a lot of Proverbs that are listed and even intertwined with some of the phrases in this chapter. If you guys have a pen and paper, I'm going to give you a list of Proverbs. This will be your homework for the week that I want you to take with you, okay? These are Proverbs that align with the verses that we're about to go through in this chapter. So if you have a pen and paper, please write this down. Proverbs 4, verses 8 and 9 will align with verse 1. Also, Proverbs 21-29 will align with verse 1. I've been waiting a long time to get this stuff out, guys. So you got like two weeks worth of studying like piled into the... I mean, I got... Trust me. You have no... Garden hose, Nikki. Like, seriously. Oh, okay, Proverbs 24-22, verse 7. So as we go through this this week and you guys go back through what we preach about, I want you to go to these Proverbs and look them up because these Proverbs are defending and speaking about kind of the defense of the verses that we go through. Proverbs 10.7 for verse 10. Proverbs 10.7 for verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 8. 24.22 is for Proverbs 24.22 is for verse 7 of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I got a couple more here for you guys. Proverbs 1.33 for verse 12 of this chapter. And Proverbs 25 verse 2 for verse 17 of this chapter. Now, when I just spoke to you guys about systematic theology and all that, do we got all of it, by the way, or do I need to go back through it? I can go back through it. Jolene, you do well with me. Like, you always tell me to make sure that people get it and not assume. And I just did that. And they didn't all get it, so. You guys thank her for that. Go through it one more time, okay? For verse 1 of this chapter, Proverbs 4, verses 8 and 9. And also Proverbs 21.29. That will align with verse 1 of this chapter. For verse 7 of this chapter, you will look at Proverbs 24.22. For verse 10 of this chapter, you will look at Proverbs 10.7. For verse 12 of this chapter, you will look at Proverbs 1.33. I feel like a professor. I'm pushing my glasses up too, Jolene. No, I'm not trying to annoy you. My glasses are falling down. This is great. She doesn't like when I push my glasses up all the time. So, well, Even when I don't have... Con- but even when I have... Guys, even when I have contacts on, I still do it. Do you guys do it? Yeah, like I'll sit there and I'm like, wait, I'm not even wearing glasses. <laughs> Proverbs 25.2 for verse 17 of this chapter. Are we good? Okay. So real quick. Just to go on this, I just want to draw a line here. We talk about systematic theology, okay? I said Christology, which is the study of Christ. Ecclesiastes does not really have any systematic theology to it. There's no like direct mention, really, of Jesus. There's no direct mention too much of even eschatological end-time stuff. There really isn't anything there. 
However, it does make mention of certain things that we can draw lines from Ecclesiastes to books, especially in the New Testament. And this is the beautiful thing about Scripture, okay? Scripture defends Scripture. So, a word that we have heard throughout Ecclesiastes, it's mentioned around 40 times in the book, is this word vanity, meaningless, right? In the Hebrew, this word means, this word is called habel. This means vapor. It's like frustration, right? It's this, I can't, I can't do anything about it. I see it. I can't grab it. This is even why the author makes reference to chasing after the wind. This word habel, though, that is used throughout Ecclesiastes, when we look at Romans 8.20, and you guys don't have to go there, but I will read it to you if you want to write it down. If you want to go, you can. Paul uses this same word in reference to the frustration of creation that Solomon, or the author, is speaking about almost a thousand years prior. In Romans 8.20, Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility or frustration, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. When we read through that verse and that phrase, we can see and hear about Jesus Christ. We read about God, right? Because Jesus is the one that set us free, right? Set us free from this sense of bondage. So we can take a word like Habel that's being used by Paul in Romans and we can link it almost a thousand years prior to the word that the author of Ecclesiastes is using to speak about life. Because from his point of view, remember, if you don't know God or don't fear God and you're just living this life where you're running the rat race, right? Where at the end, the rat always dies, but the course is always changing throughout life. Everything just seems pointless and meaningless, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Why do we do what we do? Why do we get up and work? Why do we do the things that we're doing? There has to be some meaning or purpose behind this. And if you don't know God, if you don't fear him, what a miserable existence that you will have. This is really what the author is trying to hit home with. And in Ecclesiastes 8, he's going to be speaking about a topic, once again, that tends to be disputed amongst people. But I told my wife, I think that it kind of still works together. So we're going to start off here in Ecclesiastes 8. I'm going to work through it. Now, I don't want to say as quick as possible, but there's a, a, an end message here that I want to make sure that I give in regards to that. I'm preaching out of the ESV, so I want you guys to just kind of follow along and I'll make sure that I try to unpack this as well as I can, okay? Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face changed. Now, what, are they being, what is trying to be said here? Basically, the, the words, the meaning, the phrase that's being spoken about is, is that when we obtain this wisdom that the author's speaking about, our perspective of life should change, right? If we're walking around and we don't have this wisdom, we don't have this understanding, I just spoke to you guys and said that if you don't have a fear for God or reverence for him and all that, and you're just going about your day and you're just working and toiling and all this day in, day out, whatever, you could develop this hardness about existence. And I'll sit there and argue and say that people that don't know God, for the most part, do. They struggle with reconciling certain things in their life. They struggle reconciling tragedy. They struggle with trying to find purpose and meaning in what they do in their everyday life and job. And we hear it in the church so often, right? What's my purpose? What am I supposed to do? It's just this common theme that we have in existence and in creation where we're trying to figure out why am I here, right? What's the, what's the grand scheme of it all? We read throughout Scripture, though, and what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is, is let's get the foundation right. Fear God. Know that there's a God who's with you. Know that there's a God that's for you. Know that there's a God that loves you. And he'll give you the things that you need that he sees fit that you need. He's a sovereign God over creation. He doesn't do anything without a reason behind it. He knows all. Let's set that foundation first. And as Christians, we know that we're created to do his purpose, to live in his will. 
With that comes peace and contentment. We know that when we abide in Christ, Christ is peace, then we know peace as well. So that means basically I don't sit here as a Christian, as a believer, and go, what job am I supposed to have? Who am I supposed to be with? What, how much money? We don't think that way as Christians. We know that we have Christ and he is our portion. That means that there should be a contentment in our heart with him and by knowing him that regardless of whatever it is I'm doing, I should just give praise to God because he's the one that's given it to me, right? But we wrestle with this sometimes, don't we? We struggle with this. We struggle with that contentment. But what the author's sitting here saying is, is that when you have this wisdom and that foundation is set in the way that it should, there'll be a brightness to your face, an illumination. And there's even other scriptures that speak about this as well. And if you guys want to take a note, you guys can do this. Once again, your pastor has a bunch of notes here, but I'll get through it. Exodus 20 to 11. Second Samuel twenty one seven First Kings two forty three And I even believe too another I didn't write this down, but when you guys even read through the book of Acts and Stephen is is giving kind of this amazing sermon. It even speaks about Stephen's face. I believe it's Acts 6.15 where his face is illuminated. Like the religious leaders even see his face as radiant because there's this like, there's this God's like presence is there. Like there's, it's the same aspect here. Like when we know the Lord, there's this illumination to us and the hardness of our face has changed. We walk around with just a sense of contentment and peace that the world knows nothing about because we know Jesus Christ. Okay. He goes on here in verse 2 to say, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Now, if you have the NASB, some of your Bibles will say keep the royal command. And the NASB, if you guys have one, does anyone in here have that Bible translation? NASB? No one does. Wow. What you will see, though, in the NASB is there are words that are italicized in that translation. All that means is it's not in the original text, the original manuscripts. They were added for this sense of interpretation of what's being spoken about. Okay, It's not taking away from what's being spoken about, but it's an add-in from our English perspective of what's trying to be said. Now, certain commentaries will argue here and say, is this being spoken about of a godly or of God or of an earthly king? I sit there and say it really doesn't matter. Why do I say that? Well, as I told my wife this morning, we can't comprehend in the United States the power that these kings had back in the biblical days. And there's still some people today that have this kind of power. If I was to look at Jason and Carmen as a king and I was to make a, a proclamation that they were to just be killed, there would be no question about it. They would be done, right? I would never do that. But... If I was a king and, and back in those times, whatever I say goes. Like, yes, in our freedom, in our culture today, we can mock presidents, we can mock elected officials, we can put bumper stickers on our cars making comments and stuff like that, right? We can do that in our culture. You go back to the author Solomon's time, you wouldn't have that authority or that ability to do it. Exactly. So they were even in alignment too, and that's even what's spoken about here when it says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, right? Or his oath to God. This is a sovereignty comment, right? A sovereignty statement. When we look at Romans, it's the same concept that Paul's speaking about to us even in the book of Romans. To submit to governing authorities as Christians. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know that the orders are laid out for us. So yes, there's times where we don't have to follow the decrees of authorities, especially if it goes against what God commands and tells us to do, because we do this to please God, not man. But our witness matters to the world. And the sovereignty statement here is really being spoken about that, guess what? And my wife and I have spoken about this. You guys can read throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes God brings the oppressor. He does it, especially when he sees that his people aren't living in accordance to his will. 
He will bring the oppressor to wake people up. In his sovereignty, there's a purpose and a plan for that. We have uh, an arrogance and a pride about us as creation, especially when we get too comfortable. We think things should go in accordance to the way that we do, even to the point where we want to rewrite God's word and and interpret his word for something that it doesn't even mean. Well, God and his sovereignty will be the one that can bring the oppressor to wake us up and to bring us to an end of ourselves. Jelaine, will you go back a couple books to Proverbs 6.14 or 16.4? Proverbs 16.4. Once again, I want you guys to think about the sovereignty statement that's being spoken here. Like God's allowing individuals to be appointed. He can use them for his glory, and he usually does in some way, shape, or form. We may think that a person's wicked beyond all get out. God can change the heart of that person. But God can even use the wickedness of that person to still fulfill his will and his glory. So what does Proverbs 16.4 say? The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Like, we don't study that in Sunday school a lot. We don't hear about that in church a lot. Like This is stuff where, once again, it is a sovereignty statement. God is so big and so awesome that he even uses the oppressors. Yeah, he's against oppression. We spoke about all that. But wait a minute. If I'm called to submit to governing authorities, why is that? Because my foundation is correct. I fear God first. He is my fear. He is my tread. And if my heart is where it needs to be as a Christian, if my heart is where it needs to be with my relationship with the Lord... I'm not concerned about what politicians are necessarily doing because I know God is sovereign and he's working this out. My orders are just. If he lays laws of the land to make the land look crazy, guess what? It provides a dark backdrop for me to go out and speak Jesus Christ to a bunch of people. And if anything, it's just going to play out in a way where they're going to see that the way that they're living brings nothing but destruction. Right? So this is what's being spoken about. He's saying, once again, to go over it, I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, this sovereign statement or his oath to God. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. We got to get our mind around the context of the statement. If Brandon is a king and he's a wicked king, guess what? I don't care how much you don't like Brandon and what he does, but Brandon's going to do what Brandon wants to do. And you can read throughout the Bible, you can read throughout human history that guess what? There have been people in power that do horrible things and do what they want to do. Does anyone want to debate with me about that? You can see me after church if you do. I didn't want you to do it right now in front of everyone, but (laughs) seriously. So I want you guys to stop and and this is where I want us to go into the, the, the geeking out with the Bible stuff. If you have your phone with you, I want you guys to look up, and this is weird that a pastor's having you do this in church, but I want to I point out what I'm trying to say here, okay? Look up Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 3 in the Good News Translation. Look it up. If you guys aren't familiar with the Good News Translation, some of you are because you're giggling. If you have family members that use the Good News Translation, I'm not picking on them. Ecclesiastes 8 chapter or verse three good news translation i'm going to read it to you from the esv and anyone here from with the niv kjv nasv nlt blt whatever there's no blt they all say the same thing but good news translation is going to say something that you guys will sit there and go what happened there okay so Be not hasty to go from his presence. Or in other words, do not leave the king's presence. What does the good news translation say? Be not troubled at his presence. What was that again? You guys hear Joey? The good news translation says depart from his presence. The good news translation says to leave his presence. So this is where, once again, when we start to go into translations and stuff, and people that sit there and debate about the Bible and go like, hey, look, there you go, that tells me the Bible's not right because, look, they said something. No, it was a textual variant. It was a misreading of the original text. That's it, right? 
But this is why looking at other translations, I think, are important because they can unpack and show more of the objective meaning of what's being spoken about. Okay? We can get very dogmatic in translations. We can. And this can keep us funneled. And I appreciate, I don't appreciate all of them. I appreciate my KJV, NKJV, NIV, ESV, NA. I love those, but there's some ones out there that I sit there and struggle with. Where I just sit there and I go, I don't know where these people came up with this. But it was more for a sense probably if they wanted the reader to comprehend what's being spoken about. But for the sake of comfortability and, and comprehensiveness, they're actually taking away from the meaning of the, of the scripture. And we have to be careful with that. Yep, the SV. Right. And I, I don't see the conflict because mine reads, do not, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil place because for he does whatever he pleases. And then yep. the other one says, the king can do whatever he likes. Right. So depart from his presence. Right. Don't stay in such a dangerous place. Right. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. To me, means the same thing. When I was reading and going through it, I just saw the conflict in regards to one saying to not go and the other one. Does anyone, no one in here has the NASB, correct? Does anyone have the NIV? Yes. Okay. What does the NIV say? <laughs> Joey, I'm not there. Don't be in a hurry to go. And one says to go. Be not hasty to go. One basically implies to not to be in a hurry to go, and the other one says do not leave. Like do not exit his presence. Do not exit where you're at. I see what you mean. Right. And I think it's it's tricky because we we use the term hasty. Right, right. Uh, yeah. I get what you're saying. I do. But the, the emphasis I want to make, though, is, is that, once again, in these translations, we can take these words that are in the original and we can imply them to mean something else by putting like our English interpretation on them to where it can kind of stray away maybe from what's being said, because you're right. I mean, when you continue on to what he's saying, he says, for he does whatever he pleases, the word of the king is supreme. Or wait, do not take your stand in the evil cause. For he does whatever he pleases. So basically, though, the emphasis of the text is, is the, 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 in essence, the, the transferable sovereignty that God has given to the king to do whatever he wants, it, wants. And even in the midst of him doing whatever he wants, it could be something for an evil cause. It could be something wrong. It could be something not godly. And we see that. We've watched it be played out in human history. And this is, once again, the practicality of what's being spoken about in this book is, is, is that we can't really debate or argue with what the author is trying to sit here and say. And we can, we can talk about that more even, Michelle, afterwards, but I appreciate yeah. you bringing it up. Verse 4 says, For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command, I will know, or will know, no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Verse 6 says, for there's a time and a way for everything. Do you guys remember Ecclesiastes chapter 3? A time for everything. Something that we can't debate, right? A time to be born, a time to die, a time to laugh, a time to be sorrowful. The author here is once again kind of repeating that theme. For there's a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble, translation here in some, that word trouble actually means evil. Man's evil lies heavily on him. For he does not know what is to be, or who can tell him how it will be. Now this, once again, we look at even chapter 3, verse 22. Our minds are finite. We can't predict or know the things of God. Okay? And we operate sometimes as such in thinking that by the things we do today can have some sort of like eternal bearing on tomorrow. And when I close this sermon out, I'll kind of give you guys an example in connecting this of what that means. Because how many of you in here today, a lot of the stuff that you're doing today, even if it's in a sense robbing you of the peace today, is to give you a sense of this security for tomorrow. 
Honestly, we do this. We're doing stuff today, not focused and living on today, because we're convinced that it's going to bring a sense of something tomorrow. And a lot of what the author here is speaking about. I'll give you this quick story before I continue on. I, I had a, a couple individuals that I've known, even my supervisor, um, Chris knows because we work with them, but, um, and even a, a buddy that I've known years ago, where they, they had family members in their life that worked and, and toiled and, and I guess you can say struggled to get to this place of their life that would be, I guess you can call it retirement, but it was more of like they were doing all this stuff to get to the end of life to go, okay, now I'm just going to take a break. It's kind of what our culture talks about and says. And I'm not here to knock or say that it's wrong to plan or that it's wrong to put stuff up to try it for a day. That's, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. But what I am speaking about is the sense of motive that can take over in our hearts when it comes to that. And in both situations and cases, these individuals that I know, their family members, just get to the end of their working days and they both have heart attacks on their vacation spots and die. Think about that. They busted butt to get to the vacation, only to get to the vacation to die at the vacation. Now, for us, we could sit back and evaluate the life and go like, that didn't make sense, right? Now, once again, I'm not knocking it, but one has to sit there and go and say, once again, we speak from contentment as Christians. Are we working with contentment in our heart? Not saying that we can't get to a place where we enjoy the fruits of our years of labor, right? But are we in a place of contentment to where, let's say we work until the day that we die. Are we okay with that because it's completely countercultural with what we talk about right like this is what we do in our culture you work you bust butt you put in your time and then you're done but it's weird though too when you look at a lot of older people that do this they struggle because they're like all i've known to do is work for 40 years and then when they stop working they die in like five it's almost like maybe they were created to toil a little like, I don't know. Like, so these are things where the author, once again, is going to speak about and talk about. It's not that he's saying that planning anything is bad, but it is a heart thing. It's a motive thing. What is the motivation behind you doing the work today for the comfort of tomorrow? Are you just here today? Once again, it spoke about in earlier chapters. Like, I sleep okay because I'm a laborer that's content with the toil and the lot that I have. But it says the one who's concerned about the toil of tomorrow, they don't sleep. Why? because their brain's in tomorrow. There's a lot of people that have that burden on them. I'm thinking about bills of tomorrow and buildings and stuff. It's chaos, and this is what the author's saying. It's applied knowledge here. He's lived through it. So he goes on to say here in verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit. This word spirit in the Hebrew means life. Okay? No one has the power to re retain life or the power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All it's really being said here is what I just got done talking about. I don't care how much knowledge you have, how much stuff you have, what you think you know. Guess what? You all have a day that you are going to die. And God knows that day. And I don't care what you do to try to avoid it. That day is going to come. And I asked the question a couple weeks ago, how many of you want to know that day? Not many people said, yeah, I don't want to know it. Once again, this is something that you can't argue with what the author's talking about. You can't do anything to retain life, to retain the spirit. And you have no power over the day of your death. None. There's no discharge from war, nor wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I've observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. Remember, this is the author taking, observing, and applying his life and what he has seen to the mindset of the futility and the frustration of those who operate and live under the sun. They don't know God. It's all about what they see in front of them rather than the sun itself, or even for us as Christians, we live now above the sun. We know how this goes. We know how this story ends. But for those that live in a different way in the sense of, okay, I can control this and control that, it's not good. 
While applying my heart to all this that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt, that word hurt also can mean sin as well. Basically, once again, when we disobeyed God in the garden, when all of that took place, I'll even go back beforehand, when we were given authority over creation, since then we have perverted that authority. We have not lived up to the standards in which God has laid out for us with the authority that we have over creation. Does anyone want to argue with me about that? Because you'd be arguing with God. Like, seriously. How do we, I'm not going to get on any political thing or nothing like that, but listen. The, the way that we live, our consumer mindset, especially in America, other developed countries and stuff like that, like eventually a tab's got to be paid for the stuff that we do, right? You burn stuff, you put stuff... I, uh, my uh, supervisor, once again, I keep bringing him up, but his dad is a nuclear engineer guy. And I was unaware of this, and maybe for you know a lot of the educated folks in the room know this. Did you guys know that when they take like those replacement nuclear uh, Cylinder. cylinders out from the plants, do you guys know what they do with those? Where, what, do you, where do they take them, do you know? They get buried real deep. Or they even take them out, what's, is it Lake Huron, I think it is? They take them out to one of the Great Lakes and they actually drop them off in the deepest part of the lake. We don't talk about that. So I stop and I think about that. Like, eventually, like, do you guys ever have those, like, moments, maybe I'm a weirdo, where you, like, flush the toilet or turn the water on or throw your trash away and you just kind of have these moments where you're like, you guys think I'm a weirdo. I know all of you have done this before. Or you just sit there and go, like, how do they manage all this junk? Like, it has to go somewhere. It has to be. My wife does amazing with recycling. She, like, I literally dug a mayonnaise jar out of the recyclable bin this last week because yeah, I. It's not like a no, no, you're no, you're right though yeah. because there's a. There's, it wasn't washed and there was a label on it. And she said they can't use it if it has a label on it and it's not washed. Yes, they can. No, they don't. No, they don't. But but see they go see. All of it and just don't get rid of all of it. There's not somebody that picks labels they No, get they, rid of all they get rid of all of it. So and I asked about it. I think so. Most of it goes together anyway. But but that's what I'm saying. Like once again, like we have taken our authority over creation, and we have pretty much done with it whatever we want. Remove even what we do with our recyclables and all that. How do we how do we treat each other? Treat each other like garbage. Let's be honest. So this is what the author's sitting here saying. Like, I've observed while applying to my heart all this done under the sun when the man had power over man to his sin. To have sinful man rule over sinful man has led to nothing but chaos and destruction. There's no perfect leader, no perfect politician, no perfect anything. It's just chaos. It's vanity, it's frustration, it's push and pull of life, it's ah oh, here today, gone tomorrow, what does all this mean? Uh, fear God, love God. It's the only way you're going to find meaning in all this chaos, all this stuff under the sun. Continue on here. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity, right? The author, I've seen people do wicked things and horrible things, even in the place where it's supposed to be like holy and all that. And they get buried and there's a group of people that praise them. Even after their wickedness. This is also vanity, meaningless, it's frustration. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Wait a minute, I'm getting away with doing the sin that I'm doing and I haven't gotten caught yet. God hasn't punished me yet. I've stolen things and no one's caught me yet. We just talked about this at Men's Group Thursday, right? You ever see someone say they're sorry? And it's like, I don't think you're sorry. You're sorry you got caught. Sometimes getting caught is a beautiful thing. This is what the author's saying. Man, I'm not getting the restitution or the retribution I should be getting, the sentence I should be getting for my sinful life. So what does that do? It just makes me sin all that much more. God seems to not care. I'm just going to keep doing it. 
I can sit here and say to you guys, like, you guys know people like that, but maybe we've done that before, right? People don't want to look me in the eye when I say that. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. So maybe by the scheme of things, he's doing stuff that isn't right. And maybe it seems like his life is being prolonged from our perspective, right? He's doing bad things. She's doing bad things, things that, that are disobedient to God. And it seems their life is prolonged. The author says, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And this basically means it's that quorum Deo statement. I love saying it to you guys because it's literally the motto of the Christian. You live in the presence of God, for the glory, the glory of God, doing everything that you're alive for under the authority of him as well. Everything we do is in his presence. This is what it means. The fear before the Lord. So the person that lives a life like that it'll be well with them, regardless if they live long or they live short. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. And this word shadow is basically like a shade. It's temporary. It's nothing that's really permanent. You guys can look at a shadow that's being cast and know that an object is casting it, but if that object shifts or chains, what, what else changes? The shadow does, Right? The shadow can be removed as well if the light is a certain way. And closing out here, verses 14 through 17, it says, There is vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Can we say amen to that? We just covered it in this last chapter. Man, the stuff that should be happening to the evil people are happening to the righteous. And the things that I would think that I was raised in my theology as a Jew to think this should be happening to the righteous people, the wicked. I just read it to you, Psalm 73 this morning, right? Our lives attest to this. We witness and see this every day. I said that this is also vanity, and I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. This eat and drink and be joyful, guys, is just a metaphor to just enjoy what it is that you have. Be content with the lot that God has given you. If you know God and fear God and you know what you have in front of you, be content with that. Let that be the foundation in which you live. Don't go out striving to go on, I need to make my lot bigger. I need to make my lot more plentiful. Because it'll only bring frustration. And your lives attest to this. Right? I'm not saying God won't put opportunity for something in front of you to gain something more. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is if your motive and your heart isn't correct, it will bring about struggle and frustration. And a lot of you in here know what I'm talking about. It just does. What's the old saying? More money, more problems. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find, found out, or find out the work that is done under the sun. This basically means that Brandon, Josh, Dave, Joey, Wyatt, we could stay up all night and day trying to figure things out get all the greatest books in the world by the smartest people to try to figure out and learn the ways of the world. We're not going to figure it out. Man's tried. We can't. We can probably start to maybe unveil something only to come to a place and go, well, that doesn't work. This is what the author's sitting here saying. However much man, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. So, in closing here, once again, and I just want to close with this little, I guess, I don't want to say it's a sermon on a sermon, but I want you guys to turn to Luke chapter 12 real quick. Now, I made a comment at the baptism service. I said good preaching is preaching for two hours and it feels like 20, so hopefully you guys feel like only 15 minutes has gone by. Oh, no one's saying anything. That's good. Yes, Josh. Thanks, Brandon. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Verse 1. 
chapter 12. Now, once again, I just want to clarify this. In no way, shape, or form am I saying that having something planned out is bad. Not saying that. But when I look at chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, especially the latter part there, and I see what the author is trying to say, he's basically once again saying, which we've seen and read repeatedly, to eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be joyful. Be content with the lot that God has given you. Check the motivation behind your striving of things of the world. Okay? Are you striving because maybe the Lord's put you in a place to be able to do so? Or are you striving because your heart's in an improper place with an improper motive? Only to come to a place, once again, of going, man, that was pointless. Or man, that was frustrating. Or I feel like I'm going after something, but it's just never there. I feel like I'm chasing after the wind. I can't grab it. So Jesus here in Luke chapter 12, verse, starting at verse 20, has a situation, a scenario that he's wanting to teach. In 12, verse 20, he goes to say and to speak about, and he'll also go on to speak about not to be anxious here, but I'll actually start off here at verse 13 in Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I want to read that again, because there's gospel out there, prosperity gospel, that talks about that this is what God wants for your life. He wants you to have an abundance of possessions because he loves you. And I'm here to sit there and say that, no, God gives you what you need. And he can give you a lot of stuff, but if you have a heart that's not in a good place... I don't see God giving you all that stuff. But he said to him, man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you, and he said to him, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. Covetousness. Why? Because once again, we read that that's a commandment. One of the Ten Commandments. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He's speaking about a motive. Hence the word covet. The intention behind the possessions. Okay, I see what Jason has. I see what Brandon has. I see what Scott has. I want that. I see what the world's telling me that I should have. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. This is mine's in tomorrow. Right? With a little bit of anxiety in today. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. This isn't Pastor Josh saying to you. This isn't your parents saying to you. This is what God said to him. Fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Do we see kind of the alignment here, what was being spoken about in Ecclesiastes? We can work all this stuff, get all this stuff, but at the end of the day, who are we really leaving it up to? Because we don't take it with us when we go. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So you see here, just because you have a lot of stuff, you could actually be in poverty towards God. Why? Because your heart could be straight away from where it needs to be. It isn't about possessions. It's about your motive. It's about your foundation in life. It's about the things that you see value in and contentment in. And those are only properly aligned when you know and fear God. And you'll see when Jesus continues on here, his teaching is what? To not be anxious because guess what? That motive comes from living in tomorrow, a day that isn't here. Energy going to a day that's not here yet. Tomorrow's going to come regardless. You guys can't stop it. Your death won't stop it. The death of a loved one won't stop it. Tomorrow is going to happen. The sun will rise. Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, just preached and taught on that. So once again, I can end every chapter with this message and with you guys to leave here thinking and praying and going to the Lord about, search my heart, God. Let me know if my motives and my intent are where they need to be that properly align with you. If I have a heart that's coveting stuff because neighbors have it or culture says I need it, 
At the end of the day, I just want to be rich towards you. That might mean that the identity of what I have doesn't align with what it is that I want to go after, but I know by simply knowing you, it is well with my soul. Amen? I'm going to close in prayer, guys. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just give you thanks for your word. Lord, I give you thanks for your abundance, Lord, in knowing you. Lord, you are our portion, and you're all that we need truly in this life. And with each day, Lord, we see bankruptcy. We see people pursuing and going after things that lead to nothing, Lord, only just a sense of disappointment. But Lord, in your sovereignty and your grace, you allow us to even experience such things to come to know the value and the the beauty of knowing you. So Lord, I just pray over myself and even the individuals here, the individuals listening, Lord, that they just come to you, Lord, having you search their heart, search their motives of where they're at with you today, Lord. And to repent, to see that, Lord, if it's in a place where they shouldn't be, and to turn away from it and to turn to you. And to have you guide them in their motives every day, Lord, of where they should be and how they should act. What they should pursue. Seeking just their daily bread from you, Lord. We give you thanks for your love. We give you thanks for your mercy and your grace over our lives. It is in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Get some cookies.